Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So, to review, here's what we know so far. We know that when Adam fell, all of mankind was present in our representative father. And so we all share in the curse that was the result of Adam's fall. The wages of sin then is death. And the reason that we know that men are still sinning is that men are still dying. Even though we do some relatively good things when we compare our actions to other people, we still know that by God's perspective, from the way God views us, all our best works, all our righteousnesses, are nothing but filthy rags, and we have nothing with which we can go to God and say, here is my goodness, please accept me on this basis. So even though we may do relatively good things, comparatively good things from God's perspective, we are totally depraved. So that means that we're totally incapable of saving ourselves. After all, last week we looked at all the cannots that came right from the mouth of Jesus. All the stuff that we cannot do, leaving us with the realization that when it comes to the matter of salvation, we really cannot do anything to save ourselves, to help ourselves. The Bible tells us that we're wicked, that we're dead in trespasses and sins, that we're a bond slave to sin, that we are deceitful, that our hearts are wicked, that we will always act on the lusts and the desires of our heart every single time. And therefore, when we face the question that we faced two weeks ago, who decides? Well, then the only decision making that can possibly be done has to be God deciding, considering that the Bible describes us as incapable of deciding those kinds of good things. After all, a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And Isaiah 53, 6 has already told us that all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. So that's the way that God sees us. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. So even if we say we're comparatively better than somebody else, still we're self-justifying, and the end result of our self-justification will be death. Not just physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God, what the book of Revelation calls the second death. So that's what we know so far about us, about who we are, about what we're like. So when it comes to the matter of soteriology, 
Do you know the big word soteriology? That means the study of the theology of salvation. Given the state of human beings, how is it that anybody gets saved? It simply cannot be a matter of the human being deciding we've already eliminated that possibility And yet the Bible talks extensively about people getting saved, people being saved. Well, then how does that happen? Well, the Bible keeps using the word elect. It keeps coming up over and over again. In fact, there are over a hundred references in the Bible to God's chosen and God's choosing The word elect and election appears over 27 times in the Bible. So it's unavoidable that the Bible uses the language of election. So therefore, the students of Jacob Arminius, when they came to the Synod of Dort, argued via their remonstrance that, yes, election is how God works, but in order to explain why God elected certain people. They argued that God chose people on the basis of foreseen faith. In other words, God who has foreknowledge, who sees everything that's going to happen in advance, looked down that long telescope of time, and he saw who was going to believe. And when he saw that, let's say, Tom was going to believe, Tom was going to choose God, since God saw all that and knew all that about Tom, that becomes the reason, the inspiration for why God chose Tom. Why did God elect Tom? Because he knew Tom was going to do something that other human beings didn't do. So then the decision-making process was up to Tom. Tom chose to place his faith in the finished work of Christ. He looked at the word of God. He decided that the word of God was trustworthy. He placed his faith in the God of the Bible. Therefore, the God of the Bible chose Tom in response to Tom choosing him. That is the Arminian version of election. And one of the points of the remonstrance was exactly that. They admitted that election is in the Bible. Now, in modern versions of Arminianism that you'll find online or on TV or anything, they don't seem to be willing to go as far as their Arminian forebears went. They deny election outright. They will say that it is not God who does the choosing. It's the human being who does the choosing. It's the human being by his free will who determines, who decides that he is going to get himself saved. He's going to place his faith in Christ, and therefore he's going to get saved, be saved, as a result of what he chose to do by his own free will, and they don't even bring election into the conversation anymore. But originally, Arminianism shared that with Calvinism, They both agreed that election in the Bible does exist. It's unavoidable. You can't get away from the fact that the Bible does speak of God choosing and electing. So then the bone of contention between the two camps became, why? 
Why does God choose anybody? Does he choose because he sees something in them and he responds to them because he is obligated to them because of what they did? Or does he choose those people for no other reason than his own good pleasure? And if there is a reason, if there is some basic premise behind God's choosing, the Bible doesn't tell us what that reason is. The Bible doesn't tell us what the thought process was behind God deciding to choose certain people. Now, if you know what we've already said in our summary statement at the very beginning, I don't know how you introduce with a summary, but if you, if you agree with our review of human beings, if you agree that we are depraved and incapable and cannot then you know that all of mankind collectively are ruined sinners. We all fell in Adam. We're all guilty, and we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're born that way, come out of the womb speaking lies, and then the rest of our lives we just prove that that's what we are. And even, I think you will all agree, even when we are Christians, even when we are redeemed, blood-bought Christians, we still struggle with the sin that resides in us. When we take a real good, serious look at ourselves, we realize that we're not near as good as we can imagine we ought to be. So then, on what basis would God look at us and choose us, considering that before we were Christians, we were lost, depraved sinners, and even when we become Christians, we're still struggling with our flesh and struggling with our sin. So then at what point did we ever become so good that God would say, I'm going to choose them on the basis of their personal goodness? There simply cannot be anything within us that God says, I'm going to choose them on the basis of them. Instead, God chooses by his own good pleasure, for his own reasons, and he hasn't revealed to us what that decision-making process is. Instead, what we know is God chooses, God elects, and the Bible tells us over and over again that he does that choosing and electing by his own good pleasure to accomplish his own glory. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself, and therefore the salvation of human beings begins with him, continues with him, and is completed by him so that he gets all the glory in salvation. Now, from the very beginning, from the very earliest days in the book of Acts, when we're talking about the foundation of the Christian church, when we're talking about the first people to come to faith, when we're talking about the first assemblies of believers on the planet. When you read about them in the book of Acts, how do you read about them? Does it say that certain people chose to be part of the church? You know, in our modern world, when churches are gigantic, multi-million dollar edifices that are air-conditioned and carpeted and have comfortable seating and, and people can just kind of 
go there, be comfortable, hear some, well, I don't mean to be critical, but they hear what they hear and then they go home. There's really no price to pay for being a Christian. But in the first century church, siding with Christ, being baptized into Christ, declaring your allegiance to Christ was a death sentence because the first Christians were Jews. And as soon as you aligned yourself with Christ, you were often put out of the temple, which is where all the buying, selling, trading also went on. Oftentimes, you were at enmity with your Jewish friends and family. But then worse, once the Roman persecution started, you were being persecuted by Gentiles. So either side, no matter which way you looked, persecution was coming, trouble was coming. As you read the travels of Paul and his company in the book of Acts, Luke, recording those travels, records all the ways that Paul was punished, all the ways that they were imprisoned collectively, the stonings, the being left for dead, the the lashes that Paul took. So there's really no reason in the first century that anybody of their own free will and their desire to avoid pain and get pleasure, there's no reason that anybody would choose to be a Christian. It's one of the most astounding things in the book of Acts that Luke can write, it's really bad out here. Come join us. Come be with us. The only reason that anybody would be a Christian in the first century church was because they couldn't help it. They couldn't change the fact that they were being drawn to Christ. Now, in this modern day, the reason that I mentioned the multi-million dollar edifices that are called churches and the amount of comfort that churches are in these days, even here in our building, it's comfortable. We have heating, we have air conditioning, we have reasonably comfortable seating. We're comfortable here, we're happy. When we walk out the front door, there's nobody waiting to kill us because we came here to celebrate Christianity together. So it's comfortable in the modern church, and as a consequence, the message of Christianity has changed from it's really difficult and hard out here, come join us. The message is now, come be a Christian, get happy, get healthier, get better, get wealthier. Jesus will give you all the desires of your heart. Come be a Christian for how it benefits you. Come be a Christian because it will make your life better. But that was not the original Christian message. The original Christian message was hate this world. If you love the things of this world, you're an enemy of God. You had to recognize that companionship with Christ, devotion to Christ, was in fact a declaration that you were against the world. That's the essence of what it is to be really genuinely sold out to Christ. So how is it? That's my point. How is it that the first century church grew considering that anybody by their own free will would not decide to be a Christian? 
And if you did decide to be a Christian and you were doing it by your own free will, you would not tell people. You would keep that to yourself because it is a death sentence. You don't want your children fed to lions in the Roman circus. So you're not going to be public about it. You don't want to be tied to stakes, have oil poured over you, and have Nero's garden lit by your flaming, burning carcass. You don't want that. So then why would you publicly proclaim that you are Christian? Well, I'm arguing, and I think the Bible argues, that the only reason that the church existed in the first century was because God was actively choosing and electing people. He was making Christians out of people, and people could not deny the fact that they were Christian because of the power of God overwhelming them and bringing them to Christ. They were willing to lay down their bodies. They were willing to lose their lives. Their own lives were not precious to them because Christ was more precious to them and they learned that by the Holy Spirit that they had received, that spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but they received it, and therefore they were willing to give their lives for the testimony of the value of Christ, and that all began with God choosing them. Well, the Bible says it. Acts 13.48 says, in explaining the growth of the church, Gentiles began to hear it as Paul and Luke and his companions were traveling and preaching the gospel. Gentiles were coming into the church, but the Bible doesn't allow that they were coming to the church by their own free will. Instead, Acts 13.48 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Now that is that Greek word, pistis, pistuo, the, the verb form. It means they had faith. They had faith in Christ. Why? Why did they have faith in Christ? Well, according to what Luke wrote here, they had faith in Christ because they had already been appointed to eternal life. And as many of them, that's a smaller group out of the larger group, not everybody believed, not everybody came to Christ, but the group that came to Christ were those people who God had already appointed to eternal life, and therefore they had faith. You can't get away from the fact that the Bible says that. Why do you believe? Why do you have faith? Why are you sitting here on a Sunday morning? Why aren't you in bed? Why did you get up and decide? I actually saw that, Paul. I said, why aren't you home in bed? And he went, yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, why did you get up, clean yourself up, and come to church this morning? Well, I'm going to argue, as the Bible is going to argue, that it's because of a faith that was placed inside you that has nothing to do with you. It's not something you decided. It's not something you chose. God gave you that faith. God put his Holy Spirit in you. God has regenerated you, opened your eyes. He has opened your ears. He took out your stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh. And because of that regenerating work by God, 
You now do have faith. You do believe. But according to this verse, the reason that you are believing at this moment is because you have already been appointed to eternal life. Well, that's very good news. Now, by the way, I'm now going to answer Paul's question. That Paul right there sitting next to Jeff. That Paul. Why did you get up and come to church this morning? Why didn't you stay in bed this morning? Because the very God that did all that for you deserves worship. Amen. The very God who did all that for you deserves that you get up and make whatever effort it takes to bring your body to the place where you can worship him. Now you can worship him everywhere all the time. You can worship him night and day. You can worship him in your home. You can worship him at work. You should be conscious all the time that he is present in your life. But you need to take the time regularly, systematically. You need to take the time to come join with the saints, get away from the rest of the God-hating world, and come to a place where you can all collectively sing praises to God, worship God collectively, and he deserves it he is the only being in all of creation who deserves worship anyone else does not deserve worship father son and spirit deserve that you worship them that you recognize the value of them and the reason that you do worship them is because you are appointed to eternal life Now, look, I'm going to say some other stuff this morning. I'm going to keep talking, but you're not going to hear me say anything better than the reason you're here today worshiping is because you're appointed to eternal life. That's why you believe. That's why you have faith. And it presupposes that God chose you. Wow, that gets good, doesn't it? Yes. And that's just one verse. <laughs> Acts 2, 46 to 47, explaining the early church and the growth of the early church says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they, the saints, were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did the early church grow then, considering the amount of persecution that it was under? How did the early church grow? God added to the number within the church day by day. And he added to them those who were in the process of being saved. So that means that those that God is saving, God also brings to the church. He adds to the church collectively those that he is in the process of saving. But look who did the work. God does the work of bringing people those people who are being saved, those people who he has already determined for eternity, those people who are appointed for eternal life, he's the one that places them into the church. That is why 
the church grew and exists to this very day. You're not here because you chose to be. And I don't just mean here GCA. I mean you're not in the faith of Christ because you chose it. You're in the faith of Christ because God chose you. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. I will do it. So if he's in the process of building his church, then we know that God is adding to the church daily such as should be saved. And he's doing that because he and his son are building the church that belongs to his son. You are not in the church. You are not among the believing. You do not have faith because you chose God. You are in faith. You are in the church. You are committed to the things of Christ because God chose you. That's what the Bible says over and over again. The language of election, the language of choosing starts immediately when you start reading in the book of Genesis. After the fall, we read that mankind, the intention of their heart was only wickedness continually, and therefore God chose to kill everybody save eight people. And even there, the Bible says that the reason that God chose Noah was because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not because Noah was the good one. It's because Noah was the one that God chose so that he could keep humanity going. So eight people ended up on the ark. Why? Because God said to Noah, you, your wife, your sons, their wives, that's eight of you, you get on the boat. And then, what was it, 120 years he was building the boat as a testimony to people, building a boat in a desert, as a testimony that something bad is coming. There's going to be rain, and there's going to be so much rain, and you need to repent, and you need to turn Preaching that message, 120 years, nobody repents, nobody changes, the flood comes, everybody dies, eight people are saved alive. Why those eight people? Because God chose. The language of the Bible is always God elects. Look at Abraham. What was Abraham doing? He was in Ur of the Chaldees. The extra biblical information tells us that his father was an idol maker. So he grew up on idol worship. And then one day God chooses him and tells him, go to a land that I'm going to show you. Just start walking. When you get there, I'll tell you. Why? Why Abraham? Because there's nothing in the biblical record or the extra biblical history to convince us that Abraham was the good one. No, instead, Abraham was chosen. God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a father of nations. Nations are going to come out of you. At a time when Abraham had no kids. You know the story. So why do we refer to Abraham to this day as both the father of the Jews, the primary forefather of all Israel, And also the father of the faithful. 
Why? Because God chose him to be that. And so he believed God. God counted it to him for righteousness. And that entire theology of salvation through imputed righteousness is demonstrated in the way that God dealt with Abraham. And Paul picks it up in the New Testament and uses that as the example. So God, way back when, is already establishing his absolute supremacy in the matter of salvation. The theology of salvation throughout the Bible always starts with God doing things. He is the first cause. He's the one who decides. Not people. If he had been waiting for Abraham to decide, how was Abraham going to decide, considering that Abraham didn't know Yahweh, didn't have a Bible, never checked into a hotel where there was a Gideon Bible in the drawer. He, he just he never had any opportunity to know Yahweh or know what Yahweh expected of him. All he knew was the various idols that his father was making. How was he going to decide? How was he going to choose? God chose. God chose David, King David. What was King David busy doing? King David was watching his father's sheep. And Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. Why did Samuel go to the house of Jesse? Well, because God said to. He said, go to the house of Jesse. I'm going to pick a king from among his sons. So Samuel goes there. And he says, where are your sons? And they line them up, oldest to youngest. He looks at them all, and God says, nope, none of them. And he says, don't you have another son? Jesse says, yeah, but you don't want him. He's out tending the sheep. And Samuel ends up anointing David, the shepherd, as king of Israel in Saul's place Why? Because God chose David. And there was nothing about David on the surface that would have made God choose. Now, those are early Old Testament stories. And yet, when you read them, when you look at them, it's unavoidable that God does the choosing, that God does the deciding. It's God who determines those things. And I think sometimes people are more comfortable with the idea of God choosing, God being absolutely sovereign, God being in charge of things, God fighting for people. We're more comfortable with it when we see it in the Old Testament. It's like, yeah, well, that's how God used to work. That's how God used to be, but he's different now. Really? The God that never changes? The God who has no variableness or shadow of turning? He acts the exact same way today, and these stories that I'm recounting this morning, Paul says they were written for our education, for our learning, for our admonition, so that we can understand that this is what God is like. That's why those Old Testament stories were written down so that we could be edified by them all these years later, so that we could understand that this is how God works, the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That same God is still in the enterprise of building his church person by person, Those who are being saved, those who he has determined for eternal destiny with him, he is still in the enterprise of choosing, of electing. And the examples just keep going and going. Okay, now in the Bible, there are three primary categories of election. First, we read that God elected 
national Israel. That language of choosing and electing, the actual language, I chose you, is originally for national Israel. The second election that we read in the Bible is God elected Christ. He is the chosen one. He is the elect one. But then you also read that those who come to Christ, those who have faith in Christ, are then also referred to as the elect of God. So elect Israel, elect Christ, the Messiah, and elect saints who have faith in Christ. All three of them are referred to in the Bible as elect. And that's why I keep saying the language of election is unavoidable. You can't escape it. It's all over the place. For instance, way back in Deuteronomy 7.6, I'm going to show you a couple examples of God saying, Israel is my elect. This nation, out of all the nations on the earth, these are my chosen ones. After all, I chose their forebear. I chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then I chose the land that they were going to be in. I chose that they were going to go into bondage in Egypt. And then I chose to deliver them. It's God's choosing and determination all the way along. So he refers to them time and time again as his elect. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, Israel. This is Moses speaking to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Does that verse say election? Yes. Yeah, it does. Here is Moses feeding that theology to the Israelites so that they understand why they are in covenant with God. He says, God chose you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people on the earth. There are lots and lots of people on the earth, but you are chosen by God, he says. Isaiah 44, the first two verses Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, O Israel, whom I have chosen. I believe that the King James there refers to them as the elect. O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord that made you and formed you in the womb The same God which will help you. This is what he says. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So what's the reason that they shouldn't fear? What is the reason that they know they're going to be okay? They're going to be protected. He's going to continue to be with them. Because God chose them. And God does not change his mind. Once God determines that he's chosen somebody, he doesn't later look at them and say, oh, um, I didn't realize you were going to be like that. I didn't know you were going to do that. Gabriel, get me an eraser. 
I had such high hope for him, really, I did. God, once he determines that you are chosen, that you are elect, that he's going to save you, he's going to save you despite you. Because he knew you were going to be like this when he chose you. He knew that he was choosing a depraved sinner. That's all you could have been. And yet he chose you for salvation. To conform you to the image of his son. So God, having chosen Jacob my servant, Israel my elect, that was the reason that Isaiah could say, Don't be afraid. Do you know who you are? You are the chosen of God. Isaiah 45, I'm going to read the first seven verses just because this is such a fascinating section of Isaiah. This is where Isaiah predicts Cyrus 150 years before he's even born. He takes the time to predict Cyrus by name as the upcoming king of the Medes and the Persians. But look at how the language is framed, because it's framed in the language of choosing and electing. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. In other words, kings are going to be afraid in front of you. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. In other words, it's just going to be a smooth entry into your leadership as king. I will go before you and I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze. I will cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord Yahweh, the King of Israel, who calls you by your name. Now, why is he doing all that? Because in a moment he's going to say, and you don't know me. He never saved Cyrus. There's no indication that he actually converted Cyrus. And yet he says, I chose you as king. That's what the language of anointing there was. I anointed you to be king over this foreign nation other than Israel. I chose you to be the king. I'm going to make your pathway smooth. I'm going to give you the treasures that have been long hidden. I'm going to make you wealthy and I'm going to give you the ability, the power to conquer And I'm going to do all that so that you will know that it is I that does all that. I, the king of Israel, do all that for you. For what reason? So that Cyrus would allow the Israelites to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls so that the worship of God could continue. I have, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, And Israel, my chosen one, the King James there does say, for the sake of Israel, mine elect. For their sake, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you. Though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides 
me. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And there is no other. I am the one that forms the light. I'm the one that creates darkness. I cause well-being. I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So God in the middle of saying, it's me, 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 it's completely me, it's utterly me, I do everything, I will make you king, I will raise you up, I'm doing that for the sake of Israel, my elect. So he's actually dealing with foreign kings, foreign enemies of Israel for the sake of his elect ones. That too ought to be very good news to you. To know that your enemies can't do anything to you if you are the chosen and elect of God. In fact, Paul picks that up in the book of Romans and says, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because God elected them. And because God has elected them, nobody can lay a charge to you that's going to stick against God. God sees you as in Christ, secure And therefore, past tense, glorified. Then out of all Israel collectively, he chose one tribe, the Levites, to be his ministers. So he not only chose the Israelites as a nation from all the nations on the face of the earth, but then within Israel, he starts picking and choosing. Deuteronomy 18.5 says, For the Lord thy God has chosen Levi out of all thy tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. Okay, so how did Levi end up working in the temple? How is it that Levi ended up not getting a land inheritance the way the other tribes did? How is it that Levi got tithes from the other tribes. How is it that that was all accomplished? God did it. God chose. God elected. And he uses the language of choosing and electing to describe how it is that he guarantees his own worship. The worship in my temple is going to be done by particular people. I will choose those people. I will assign those people the task. And that is why they worship God. That is why they work in the temple. That is why they as a tribe spend the rest of their lives, their children's lives, their grandchildren's lives forever serving within the temple. Because God chose. There's no way around it. Deuteronomy 7. Somebody look that up. I've got written in my notes here in green ink aside from the other notes that I've written. I suddenly wrote the other day Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. So somebody look up Deuteronomy 7. You got it, Leon? Read Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8, but you got to stand up and read it to everybody. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So that language says, wasn't about you. I chose you. It's pretty clear. It's not because you were in greater in number. It's not that you were a greater kingdom of people. I, I chose you because I chose you. And that's why you're going to 
do these things. So then, out of all Israel, God starts picking individuals in order to do particular tasks. Within the leadership of Israel, it wasn't left up to them collectively to decide who their leaders were going to be. They, Israel, had become unhappy with being a theocracy. And their rules, their laws were established by Moses on Mount Sinai. But they wanted a king like all the nations around them. Because when the other nations would go into war, they would have a king leading them. And so they said, we, we need a king. And then God ended up saying, yeah, okay, all right. They can have a king. And he's going to take all the best of everything. And he's going to tax you like crazy. But okay, if you want a king, you can have a king. And he chose which king. He decided who was going to be that ruinous king. He decided who the first king was going to be. It was going to be King Saul. And then after he chose King Saul, who was a head taller than everybody else, so the Israelites liked him. They were like, yeah, we have a really good king because look how tall he is, and he'll lead us into battle. And then he did all the things that God told them. Now he's going to do all this. And then God decided to choose a man after his own heart. By contrast from the ruinous king, he decided to choose a man after his own heart, and God chose David. Psalm 22.9, David writing says, Thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Psalm 78, 70 explains why that would be. He chose David also, his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds. So David's perspective is, I, I have been yours from the time you formed me in the womb. You already knew me. I was already cast upon you when I was just an infant. And the reason is because God chose David to be the king. He chose David when he was still shepherding his father's sheep, when he was in the sheepfold. Nevertheless, God chose. Are you getting a feel for this choosing thing? God just keeps choosing. God just keeps deciding. God just keeps making these determinations. Why? Because humans can't. I think we proved that last week. We can't choose. God has to choose. So then in the New Testament, we see this language of choosing continuing. We see it everywhere. The language of election, for instance, Back in the book of Acts again, in chapter 13, verse 17, it's Paul speaking to the men of Israel, and he says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from Egypt. Why did he do all that? Because God chose our forefathers. Paul was very, very comfortable with the language of election, and he got the election theology correct because he said it was God that did it. 
It's God that chose. It's Paul who keeps telling us about human inability and human depravity. And yet Paul tells us that God keeps choosing depraved people in order to accomplish what he has decided to do. And by the way, he's still doing that today. Any of you depraved people want to testify that that's what he's still doing today? You probably won't raise your hand, well, sheepishly. Mark 13, 20. Christ talking about the tribulation to come, the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the time that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. It's cut short. Why? Jesus explains why. Mark 13, 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. It's going to be so bad that if God had not cut those days short, nobody would survive it. But why does he cut the days short? But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Yeah, well, when we get to Jeremiah saying that it's the day of Jacob's trouble, but Jacob will get through it, and we see all that language of Israel as the elect, if we know this is a time of trouble for Israel, then the language of election here is referring to God keeping Israel alive despite this time of trouble that's coming. So for the sake of the elect, I believe that's for the sake of Israel, he will Shorten those days because that's who he chose. It's fascinating. This language of election is so deep and it permeates the Bible and it tells you why things happen. It's one of the most fascinating characteristics of the Bible and of God revealing himself in the Bible. That he not only predicts what's going to happen and tells you about things that have happened, but he also tells you why. He explains it to you. He explains why things in human history occur. And it's always him. It's always him doing it. It's always for his reasons. It's always for his purposes. And it's for the sake of those people who he has chosen. That's why human history turns the way that human history turns. Because God is doing what he's doing for the sake of his elect. So that the people he has chosen will indeed be conformed to the image of his son. And will indeed be justified. And will indeed be called. Will indeed be glorified. Will end up in glory with him. And that's all happening as you walk through your life. And so I argue we ought to pay attention. You ought to pay attention to the things that happen in your life. Have you ever had a moment? Have you ever had an occurrence in your life that you thought, wow, that should have killed me? (laughs) I've had several. I've had several moments from falling asleep in the car in the snow in Detroit and waking up several miles down the road at three in the morning. I mean, that was a frightening moment because I went through several intersections Get asleep. I I shouldn't be alive. I had a surgery in 2001 that tried to kill me. The doctors actually gave my mother the we've done everything we can do speech. And said we've done everything we can do. Tonight he's either going to turn or the word they used 
or total organ collapse. That could have happened. I was totally, utterly in God's hands and knew it at that moment. And God decided I was going to live longer. Why? Because it's up to God. Because God chooses. Because God kept me alive. Okay, why has the church survived despite the persecution of the world? Why is the church still alive on planet Earth today? Because God is still in charge of human history for the benefit of his elect, for his chosen, for his church that he is still in the enterprise of building. Election is a whole lot more than just God choosing some people to bring them to Christ. God, because of his election, is formulating and laying out all of human history and describes it in his word so that we can understand that that's what he's doing That ought to make you feel very secure, but it also ought to make you feel part of the big plan. This is not just an arbitrary plan by God. These are not just details of life that are going by in a completely willy-nilly fashion. This is God laying out human history for your benefit. All things work together for good for those that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. See, that's the language, that's the theology of the Bible. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus still speaking. He's talking about false prophets that are going to arise. And when he's describing them, he's saying they're going to be so deceptive that they would deceive anybody except those whom God preserves. He puts it this way, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Why don't false prophets mislead the elect? Because it's not possible. Because they're preserved by God. Because they were chosen by God. They're infilled by the spirit of God, the spirit of truth. And that's why sheep know his voice and follow him and don't follow some false prophet. Romans 11, 5 to 7. Paul explaining why it is that some within Israel believe and some don't. In the same way then... There has also come to be at this present time, that's 2,000 years ago when Paul was writing that present time, there was at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious election. There was a remnant within Israel even as Paul was alive, people who were understanding Christ, people who were following Paul in the way of Christ. And the reason they were believing and following, Paul says, is because of God's gracious election. It was God's choice that brought them in. There is a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Election, election, election. That's the reason that even within Israel, some people were given to Christ. Some were hardened according to the electing grace and choosing of God. 
continue on in Romans 11. You get down to verse 25 and you read, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited, self-willed, self-determined. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn away godliness from Jacob. That's Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Hold on to that phrase. Unbelieving Israel are enemies of the gospel. They are enemies for the sake of the believing Gentiles. They are enemies, but as far as the election is concerned, Paul writing, but as touching the election, they're loved for the Father's sake, for the patriarch's sake. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God has chosen you, if he has elected you, if he has gifted you with the Holy Spirit, if he has called you to Christ, he does not change his mind. It is irrevocable, unchangeable. If he saved you, you're saved. And you're just going to keep coming back again and again, despite yourself, despite your sin, despite your struggles, despite your internal warfare, you're going to keep coming back to that throne of grace and finding comfort there, recognizing that he chose you, that he's the reason you're here. I know I've said it before, and so I'm going to say it again. Watch me. I'm going to say it again. If it is up to you to decide to have faith in Christ then it's up to you to decide not to. If it's left up to you and your supposed free will in order to choose Christ and be saved, then at any point you can also decide not to. You can decide that it's too hard, that you don't like the persecution. You can decide that you're a failure at it. You know, I came to Christ and I didn't get that much better. I'm still sinning. I'm still failing God. So therefore, I'm, I'm just not any good at this. I don't like the pressure. I'm just not going to do this anymore. You could give up if it was up to you. The reason you don't give up is because it's not up to you. I have reached the end of my rope so many times in this Christian walk where I'm just so tired of me. I'm so sick of me. I'm so aware of my own inabilities. How? How, God? How, how can you save somebody like me? How could you have chose somebody like me? How can I be aligned with your perfect, righteous, holy son? How? And every time I've tried to give up, and there have been many, the phrase I use is, I'd quit if there was someone to quit too. But the reason I keep going, the reason I keep believing, the reason I can't get away from the reality that God is a righteous judge, the reason that I keep standing here and going back to his word time and time again is because I really genuinely can't help it because he's got such a hold on me. His word has cornered me over and over and over again so that there's just no way to avoid that God did the choosing 
God did the placing of his spirit and therefore it's irrevocable. I can't change it. And nor, by the way, do I really want to change it. Usually, by the way, just so I can finish this little section off, usually, by the way, when I want to quit, it's because of me. When I want to continue, it's because of him. It's always focusing on him that keeps me going. Because every time I look at me, boy, I find nothing good. Every time I look at me, it's just sad. But I look to him, and there is every good reason to go on all the way to glory. All right, so God chose Israel. Jesus, then, is referred to as the elect one. Stick with me on this one point for five minutes, and we're going to sing a song. And I'll get out of your way, and hopefully you'll have learned something this morning. Isaiah 42.1 refers to him, prophesies about him, that the Messiah is the chosen one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. God speaking refers to Christ the Messiah as his servant, my elect one, my chosen one in whom I'm nothing but happy. I am completely at pleasure in the one I have chosen. My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. Why? Because God declares him to be the chosen one. He's the elect one. That's why there's no other Messiah. That's why there are no other Christs. God did not send seven or eight different Christs and you get to pick the one that suits you best. There is one, which is why Christ could say, me, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the one he chose. Therefore, you don't get to the Father any other way than through Christ. Why? Because God said so. Because God chose it. Because God elected Christ the one. So then first Peter, it gets picked up. Peter picks it up and says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture that behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. That means it's not going to be lost. You're not going to be confused by other things. You're going to be secure if you're resting on the chief cornerstone, who is elect. That is a proper name. That is a proper designation of who Christ is. He is the very elect of God. God determined the means by which he was going to save his people. It was going to be through Jesus, who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13, 8. So the people who would be saved and the method by which they're being saved is all determined by God before he made the planets. This is God's enterprise. 
God is doing what God chose to do. And God, who is higher than us and his thoughts are higher than us and his ways are higher than our ways, he decided in these great, big, eternal kind of ideas that we can't even begin to grasp. We can't even really get a hold of them. That before he made anything, he decided that Christ was going to be the elect one. So he decided who would be saved, how they'd be saved, what the method of salvation was going to be, what the means of salvation was going to be. And he decided all that before he did anything, because this was all part of his great eternal plan. No one comes to God but by Christ. Christ gets all the attention, he gets all the glory, he gets all the worship, he gets the highest name. I think Tom read that for us this morning. He's got the name that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess in front of. He gets all the glory because God chose him and he's not going to fail and he's not going to be discouraged because he's the one Who is the chosen, the elect of God, and there is no other way to get to God but by him. Therefore, when he went to the cross and he paid your sin debt, he paid for all your sin debt completely so that you will get to God by him, by what he did, by what he chose, by what he decided. Are you getting a feel for it's God, 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 through Christ, 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 by the Holy Spirit, by grace, 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 grace. There's just no other theology than that in the Bible. So if you're going to say you're a Bible-believing Christian, you need to know that that's what the Bible says. Questions? I didn't get through all the stuff I wanted to get to. Next week, David Morris will be here preaching to us. The week after that, I will just assume that you remembered everything I said this morning in detail. And then we will look at Jesus choosing. He's the chosen one, and now he's going to choose. And he's going to argue, I choose. So this language of election just keeps going. It just keeps permeating the Bible. Yes, sir, Kelly? Are you going to get to Romans 9? Did I just say I haven't gotten everywhere yet? Did I just say that? Was it me? Was I standing here? Was I right here when I said, did the rest of you hear me say? I just want to make sure that one specifically because it fits really well with what we're talking about. We're building. I wanted to blur it out the whole morning. (laughs) Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that kind of all comes under the the heading also, though, of God hardening people so that they're not going to believe. And uh, did I touch on that yet this morning? No, I didn't. No, no, I did not. No, no, that's right. No reading ahead. Anything else? All right. A moment ago in my closing statement, I said, Jesus paid for all your sin. I think we need to sing that. We're going to sing Jesus Paid It All, 125.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.